So he delivered them over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, this is your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, uh, good morning, my name's Gav, good to have you here. Uh, I'll try not to shiver as I preach. I took my jacket off and it's very cold now, but I don't get too sweaty, so I'm always Anyway, that's my issue, not yours, right? Anyway, uh, good to have you here. As Cobb said, we're walking through the book of John, and we have been for the, since the start of the year. And today, we really we are we're getting to the, the climax, we're at the pinnacle of the book, where it's really all been heading, where everything's been heading so far. We're going to see really the whole purpose why Jesus came, and it's going to it's going to land here in chapter 18 and 19 of John. So we're going to see today why Jesus came, where it's all been heading. Now, I wonder if you've ever been working towards something. You've had sort of this end goal in sight. You've had to do all this work beforehand so you can just reach this one final moment, the finale almost. When I think about this, uh, about reaching this one final moment, this pinnacle, I think of sport. My mind always goes to sport, but if it does also here as well. I remember when I was 18 and I was playing soccer. I thought I'd use the soccer illustration today, World Cup, cultural, cultural relevance, so you're welcome. Um, anyway, I was, uh, I was playing soccer. I played soccer for a long time. I played soccer for a team called the Gladesville Sharks uh, over in Gladesville where I grew up. And I was playing, I, I played soccer since I was six, right through till I was 18. And, I was, and uh, back then I was playing under 18s, Division 1. And uh, during my soccer career, I always wanted to play at this one ground. It was called Christie Park over in North Ryde. And you only ever got to play on Christie Park if you were State League or you made the Division 1 Grand Final. That's when you got to play at Christie Park. And so this year I was playing in under-18s Division 1 and we actually made the Grand Final. And I got to play at Christie Park. And we were playing versus a team called Eastwood St Andrews and they were undefeated all season. 
And uh, they'd beaten us twice in the, in the rounds, and so, uh, but we made the grand final. And so we, uh, so we were playing at Christie Park, and we got there, and it was like I'd, I'd reached the promised land, right? Just see, see Christie Park there, and it was amazing. The field was amazing. Went in the change, had change rooms even. And I'm walking the change rooms. Now our coaches played the, the song Eyes of Tiger to pump us up, you know, for the game. <laughs> like, you know, getting pumped up for the game of soccer. Anyway, we got there, and it was great. And it was like my whole soccer career had led to this moment for the Sharks from the age of six. It had built to this moment. We started playing the first 10 minutes, and in the first 10 minutes, we had two players sent off straight away. Under 18, teenage boys with testosterone, sliding around, hacking people. Two players, two red cards, bam, bam. We're down to nine players straight away. 20 minutes later, we're down two goals. Two nil, nine players. We're in big trouble. My dreams are crumbling from my eyes. I've after so many years, this moment, it's, it's slipping out of my hands. Anyway, what happens is just before halftime, uh, uh, so half of the first half, we get a free kick out of the box. I step up, take the free kick, and score a goal. <laughs> right. You know what? I was hoping for that. Thank you very much. Um, uh, score a goal 2 1. Almost on halftime, uh, we're, we're there, and uh, I'm standing on halfway, so tired. Um, just being lazy, getting a drink of water, not even watching what's going on really. Ball comes over the top, I leg it, chase it really hard, uh, get a touch, kick it again, score another goal, two all. We're up two all, that's two all, half time. I'm really taking things in my own hands, holding on to my dreams, right? I'll take care of business. Anyway, second half, uh, what happens is two all, down to nine players, a good mate of mine, Pete, who I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, is a, a sports freak. Uh, uh, he plays, he's playing there. He scores two goals. We win 4-2 grand final, Christie Park, right? Exactly, right? We win. All my dreams come true. Yes, Sharks, amazing. Uh, we win the grand final. My, my purpose of playing soccer has arrived. I then actually don't play soccer ever again. I actually quit soccer, and then uh, I, c I can't get any high. I want to play rugby union because I'm done with soccer, right? Oh, what else can I do? Socceroos, 18-1s, whatever. I've, I've arrived. Uh, but that's what we've been working for together for a team for so long. We won the grand final at Christie Park. And I'm sure we've had the same feeling of, of having a goal, working towards that goal, um, and, and setting out to achieve this goal. You know, you think of the HSC, right? 13 years of schooling from kindergarten right through, and they culminate in almost a set of exams, the HSC, at the end. And you're working towards this finish line to this goal. As I said today, we, we reached the, the climax of the book of John, where it's all been heading towards, what almost Jesus has been working towards. Throughout the book again and again, Jesus has been saying that his hour has not yet come. And then now today we reach him saying, my hour has come. This is what I've come for. This is his goal. This is what he's been heading for. And it all is the death on the cross. The culmination is Jesus' death on the cross. This is what it's been all pointing towards. In fact, not just Jesus' life, but actually if you actually read the Bible, the whole Bible's been heading towards this moment. Even if you go back, right back to the beginning in Genesis, in the, in the garden of Adam and Eve. You read of Adam and Eve, if you, if you know the story of Genesis, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they rebel against God in Genesis 3. And back there, uh, because of their rebellion, they sin against God. Humanity's relationship with God is broken, and it's severed. there's no way back. And then from that rebellion, sin enters the world, brokenness enters the, wor enters the world, death enters the world. In the first three chapters of the book. But even back then, God promises a rescuer. He promises actually a serpent crusher, someone to defeat Satan, one who will defeat Satan's sin and death in Genesis 3. So really the whole of the Old Testament is God promising to bring someone who will defeat Satan, who will, who will heal our brokenness, who will restore our relationship with God. And the whole of the Old Testament is looking forward towards someone coming to do this. 
God promising this to bring hope and healing and restoration. That person is Jesus. And today we see how Jesus climactically reveals himself to be this divine king, this divine rescuer. The whole of the Old Testament has been promising uh, for him to come. And today as we see Jesus as the, the divine king who comes to take away the sins of the world, we, we, we read John's going to ask us a question as he has been throughout the whole book. John's purpose in writing this whole book has been that you may see Jesus and have life in his name. And I was asking the question of, do you believe? Do you believe in him and have life in his name? And again, John is going to ask us that question. He's going to show us that you cannot be neutral around Jesus. Either he's your king or he isn't. There's no fence sitting with Jesus, whether he is or he isn't. And I want to say like Jacob said before, I think if you're here today, we'd love that you're here, you're in one or two categories. That you're here and you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is, what he is like, is he the king or not? And we want to say, if that's you, we would love that you are here today. But today you're going to see the very heart of the Christian faith. You're going to see what, what Christianity is really all about, the death of Jesus. You will see Jesus as the divine king, the victorious king, who lays down his life for you, for you. And God, through the Bible, asks you, do you believe? I think the second category is that you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus. And today as we look again at the heart of the Christian faith, you might think, yeah, I've heard the cross before and, and, and I, I know what this is about. But you know, my, my hope is, like Jacob was saying today, is that, that you'll be reinvigorated. That you'll see the cross again afresh. And you would grow in the sense of, of, of thankfulness and awe and love of Christ for what he has done for you. My hope is as you look at the cross, you would feel loved by God. You would see his love for you and know it and experience it afresh. I think sometimes we can look at the cross and then we can grow cold to it. And I think that's, a, uh, that's the real danger. You know, I think, that it's, I think it's almost impossible to be a follower of Jesus and, and, not, and not live daily at the foot of the cross, knowing his love and his mercy and his grace. If we try to obey out of a duty of gritting our teeth, I think we're just going to fail quite quickly. We'll start questioning God's goodness and if it's worth it. I want to say we, we cannot forget the cross as followers of Jesus. It's almost like, you know, with a fire. If you take a coal out of a, away from the fire, it gets cold really quickly. As followers of Jesus, we need, to be, we need to warm ourselves by the fire of the cross. That's what we need to do as followers of Jesus. If we're going to make it in this world, living for him, delighting ourselves in him. My hope today is to reinvigorate you as we look at the, at, the, at, the, at the facts around Jesus' death on the cross for you. So I want to pray for you right now. But I, I, what I want to do is, I want you to pray for yourself. You know what you need today. I, I, I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what your week was like. But I want you to take 30 seconds now to pray to God and pray to Him what you think you need to hear today. Then I'll pray. So let me give you 30 seconds now, then I'll pray. Father, we just want to pray for our souls this morning that we want to thank you that you, will, you are here by your spirit and you will teach us again and your word is living and active. We want to pray that we would hear 
the heart of our faith, the Christian faith, and we would see Jesus and what he has done for us, and we would be reinvigorated. We would, we would see your love for us so clearly that you would help us to block any distractions or feelings or worries or whatever it is going on in our lives right now, and that we could just clearly see the cross and be thankful. We're going to pray for those of us who don't know you yet. We're going to pray that this will become really clear today as we open up your word and look at John 18 and 19. You would show us more of your love, more of your grace, and we would see that you are worth following, that Jesus, you are the king of kings. You are the divine, sovereign king who lays down his life for us, and we can do nothing but fall on our, our knees and worship you. So, Lord, just help us to listen, to have our hearts open, to focus, to concentrate, to hear your voice this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going we're gonna to move uh, uh, through a lot of a lot of text today so we're looking at two long chapters so if you have a bible it's worth grabbing hold of your phone one at the back whatever it is i'm going to put as much as i can on the screen we're going to work through this and i want to show you the stories that moves the narrative as it moves through these two chapters um but we're going to see that jesus is the divine king who takes away the sins of the world that's what john wants you to see this morning uh, but here are my sort of three three movements trying to help you to remember what's going on the divine lamb the divine king the divine victory that's who John wants you to see, Jesus as the divine one, God himself with, as the lamb, as the king, and with all victory. So let's have a look at this. We're going to look at the first section on divine lamb. We're going to look at sentences 1 to 27. Um, let me try and talk through this. So um, we've been looking at the last little while, the second half of the book of John, chapters 12 to 17. Jesus slowed right down. And he's just hanging out with his followers and getting them prepared to leave. So he's going to leave the world. He knows that. And he's going to leave his 12 disciples or 11 disciples there alone in the world. He's getting them ready for him to leave so they can continue to be his followers and spread his word throughout. And so he's been in this sort of upper room talking to them. But now that's over and he's about to head towards the cross. And we read that uh, he has uh, just been uh, sold out by Judas as he said he was going to. And then he'll be arrested, tried and killed. And uh, uh, sentences 1 to 30 on the screen behind me. We read here in these sentences three, it's just setting the scene really. It's just just playing out as Jesus said. Judas betrays Jesus. Soldiers, chief priests and Pharisees are there with weapons and they arrest Jesus. But have a look at sentence four. It says this. I'll read it there. It's on the screen. It says, Then Jesus, knowing that all would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, I, I, I love this. Jesus, it says there, Jesus knows what's going on. He hasn't been taken by surprise by this. It's not like oh, you know, they've tried to come at night to hide under the veil of darkness. But Jesus knows what's going on. It's all part of his plan. He's not caught out because he's the king. Uh, even when he's arrested, he knows what's going on. He's the one in control. As you read this account, it shows you again and again that Jesus is the one orchestrating this. It's not out of con- his control. He's the one in control. He's not running or hiding. And he confronts them. And, he's, and he approaches them and says, who do you seek? Who are you after? Who is it? Sentences 5 to 9, they say to Jesus, oh, we're seeking the Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, yeah, that, that, that's me. That's, that's who I am. And he says, I am he. And I think, again, this language, I am he, in the book of John so far, we've seen Jesus say the many I am statements. Which I think, again, is Jesus picking up this language that he is God. Uh, in the Old Testament, God called himself uh, I am. And so Jesus is picking up that same language of saying, I am. He's again revealing himself as the king and of his power. 
in sentence 6, we see more of this power and majesty. Uh, in sentence 6, it says, uh, when Jesus said, or when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Yeah, that, that's strange. But I think what's going on here is there is just a moment, there's a glimpse where Jesus reveals himself to be God and all of his glory, and they actually are physically pushed back and fall to the ground. As Jesus shows himself to be the king, to be God himself. Uh, but, but, G, but being um, the divine king, he knows that what must happen, he knows that his purpose is to go to the cross. And so he continues on. Sentence nine, sorry, 10 and 11, uh, what happens is Peter is not having any of this. He is not up for this at all. And so Peter, um, you know, often, often flying by the seat of his pants, uh, he grabs a sword um, out of a sheath and uh, he cuts off a soldier's ear. He cuts off Melchus's ear. Poor Melchus. But anyway, he cuts off Melchus's ear. Uh, have a look at what Jesus says to Peter, though. He says, he says Peter, put your sword away. Uh, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus knows what's going on. He knows the plan. Peter doesn't, but Jesus does. Jesus has a mission. He has a plan. He will not be distracted. He will not be taken off course. And his mission is to drink the cup the Father has given him. Well, think, what, what is the cup? What is his drink? Uh, in the Old Testament, in Psalm 75, Jeremiah 25, uh, Isaiah 51, this cup is a reference, the reference of God's anger, his righteous wrath and anger against sin and injustice, against the sin of the world, humanity's rebellion against him. God is loving and merciful and kind, but he's also just, and he will not overlook injustice and he will not overlook sin. And this cup is a reference to God's wrath and anger against the sin of the world. And it's overflowing. And someone needs to deal with it and face this cup. And Jesus says in sentence 11, I will do that. I will drink this cup. This cup that the Father has given me, this is the plan. I will deal with God's anger and wrath against sin. I will deal with it. I will drink this cup. As I'm, as I'm getting uh, older, I'm, I'm finding it harder and harder to find time to exercise regularly. And so I've mentioned before that I, that I took up the sport of, of netball. Um, I say that with a smile on my face. And, uh, but uh, recently I've changed sports to more of a masculine sport. I'm playing tag gridiron on, uh, on Monday nights with a bunch of guys from City Light. It's a lot of fun, but it's a, it's a new sport. I've never played it before. It's like American football, but like with tags. And um, uh, I'm not that good at it, which frustrates me immensely. Um, but I realise, you know, if you, if you just work out, you don't need to run. I was, when I first started playing, I was running like a headless chook, not knowing where to be and getting really tired. But I realised if you just run to certain space at certain times, you can actually be quite a good player. I haven't worked out where to be yet, so I'm still working that out. Um, but um, anyway, we're a, few, a few games into our season, we had a few players out one Monday night. We're short on players. And so anyway, uh, Ebony Basher, who, who also plays with us, said, oh, my brother-in-law can play. His name's John. We're like, oh, cool. Let's, let's bring John down. And so we didn't really know who John was. And John came down, and he was one fit dude. He was, uh, he was amazing. Also, we found out that John plays gridiron uh, at a high level, full contact regularly on the weekends. We're like, wow, this, this is going to be amazing. So he comes down, and he's really quiet, doesn't really say anything. And I think he even started on the sideline for the first bit and just stood on the sidelines. And then he comes on the field and he just dominates. He's just carving up their whole team, running the ball by himself, scoring touchdowns. You throw the ball anywhere in his vicinity, he's jumping at one head and catching the ball over his head. He's intercepting their, their ball and running the length of the field and scoring touchdowns. It was amazing. 
now, normally when I play gridiron, I play sport in general, I hate coming off the field. Like, I want to be on the field. I hate being on the sidelines. Um, but when I saw John on the sideline, I'm like, yep, John, sub. Off you, on you come, mate. And so uh, uh, he would sub me in. He would take my spot on the field. He was my substitute, and he was the ultimate substitute. I was more than happy for John to take my place at Gridiron on the, on the field to fulfill my role. He was the substitute, the perfect substitute. Here we read John speaking about, uh, uh, John the writer speaking about Jesus being our substitute, uh, standing in our place, drinking our cup for us, drinking the cup of wrath of God, from God. Uh, the, wrath, uh, the wrath of God that we deserve to face. God's judgment for our sin, yours and my sin. And Jesus says, I, I will take that, I will drink that as our substitute. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we were by nature objects of wrath. Uh, we, were, we were God's enemies in Romans 5, it says, that Paul says in Romans. But Jesus comes as our substitute. And God's righteous anger against our sin is appeased in Jesus. On the cross, Jesus faces the full wrath of God for our sin. All of God's anger against sin is poured out onto Jesus. All of it, in full, rather than you and I. And Jesus knew this was his mission, to satisfy the wrath of God, to be our substitute in our place. And John picks up a similar thing in sentence 14. Have on the screen. Uh, Caiaphas says, uh, back, in, back in chapter 11, Caiaphas, the highest priest, was speaking. And he said, it's better if one man dies for the people. Now, Caiaphas, Caiaphas was speaking about that the Jews were annoyed that Jesus was causing this uprising in the Roman society. And, and he was afraid, Caiaphas was afraid, the Jews were afraid that the Romans would come down heavily on the Jews because of Jesus causing this, this stirring up people against Roman rule. And so Caiaphas says, well, it's better if one man dies and takes the punishment than all of us to suffer as a Jewish nation. But what I love here is that John's picked this up and said, you've missed the point. It's actually, yep, Jesus will die, not just to bring peace between Jews and Romans, but to bring us peace with God. Jesus' death would not just keep, uh, would, would bring us peace with God. And as you read through these last few chapters of Jesus' life, John keeps drawing these threads all together and makes sense of what Jesus has been saying and showing how it all culminates in the light of the cross. John keeps reminding us that you might just read it as a throwaway line, but he keeps saying, it's the Passover. And it's the Passover. He keeps saying it again, reminding us what time it is. And again, the writer John is pointing towards that on the cross, that Jesus is our true Passover lamb. This Passover ritual was the thing that was rooted back in, in, God's, in, in Israel's history of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. You know the story at all, back in Moses' time... <clears throat> that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and uh, God was going to uh, punish the Egyptians. But he said to the Israelite people that uh, my angel of death will come and bring my judgment on uh, all people. But if you get a lamb and you, and, you, and you slay it, you get its blood and you paint that blood above your doorpost. And then the angel of death will pass over you and judgment will not come upon you if you have that, blood, that lamb's blood on your door. It will pass over you. And it did, and the Israelites, Israelites did that. And then from then on, they had this Passover celebration where God, every year, called for each worshiper to bring a lamb, to slay that lamb, and to have that lamb's blood dashed against the altar for, for you, recalling uh, the Passover which happened in, in, in Egypt, escaping from God's judgment. Now, John's saying, Jesus is our Passover lamb. 
God's judgment is passing over you because Jesus dies on the cross. His blood is spilt for us. God's wrath is passed over us. God's judgment is passed over us. He is our sacrifice. He is our substitute. He is the Lamb of God. Back in John 1, John the Baptist says, he sees Jesus, and what does he say? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who Jesus is. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God, perfect in obedience, never sinned. And at the cross, he is torn apart. His blood is spilt for our sin. So God's judgment and God's wrath passes over us. That is who Jesus is. And on the cross, Jesus deals with our greatest problem, the enmity between us and God. I don't know if you ever stop and think for a second that we were, what does it mean? We were actually enemies with God. We were enemies with God. That you were facing his wrath, his full wrath. You were facing hell because of your sin and rebellion. We could not have been in a worse situation. But out of God's great love for us, while we were still his enemies, Romans 5 says, God sent Jesus to deal with our sin and his righteous anger. And Jesus is the divine lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's who Jesus is, and that's who we see him be at the cross for us, out of his love for us. But following Jesus' arrest, he faces the Jewish council. They, 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 they deem him guilty, and they want to kill him. And so what do they do? Well, they take him to the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate. Now, he was the one who could say whether someone was crucified or not. So they drag Jesus handcuffed to face the Roman governor. Pontius Pilate. And again, here, what, what, what I love John here does here, he slows the narrative down. And so you see this really interesting interaction between Jesus and, the, and Pilate. Now, Pilate was a man in authority and power. Jesus seemingly had no authority and power. But you see this inter, in, really interesting interplay happen, which really shows that Jesus is the one with power and Pilate isn't. This is my second observation, the divine king. It's almost like as they interact, the question is, who's on trial? Is it Jesus on trial or Pilate's on trial? And you see that actually Pilate's the one on trial. Have a look with me. Sentence 28 to 32 on the screen. Uh, the Jewish leaders bring Jesus before Pilate. In sentence 31, what does Pilate say? He says, I don't want nothing to do with him. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. It's nothing to do with me. You Jews, you go and deal with him yourself. I don't want to deal with this. And they say they can't. They, they have no power. To, they, they don't want to crucify someone. And they want Pilate to do it for them. Uh, it's interesting. These Jewish leaders are supposed to be the ones who are teaching people about God. And yet they are so consumed with killing Jesus. And so Pilate says, okay. And Pilate then comes and he then sort of investigates Jesus. Sentence 33, Pilate asks Jesus, are you king of the Jews? Uh, or are you the king, Jesus? And this whole question then forms into a discussion around Jesus and his kingship and the nature of his kingdom. And time and time again, Jesus uh, is asking Jesus about being a king. Are you the king? And Jesus answers Pilate about the question of kingship by telling him that he is a king and that his kingdom is not of this world and, his, and, and that he is a king that's on about truth and that everyone who is on the side of truth listens to him. And they have this exchange that goes on, and Jesus challenges Pilate in Sentence 37 when he says, Everyone who is, on the, who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so he's saying, well, hey, hey, Pilate, if you want truth, and if you like truth, and you, you want to be known as the one who's about truth, then you listen to my voice. So he confronts Pilate here. 
But, you know, Pilate uh, dismisses Jesus with a very postmodern answer and saying, but what is truth, Jesus? You know, throws it out there. Very ahead of his time, isn't he? But what's really ironic there is that truth is standing in front of Pilate. We've learned in John 14 that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus, being the truth, is actually eyeballing Pilate. But Pilate can't see it. But what's interesting as you read this is that Pilate knows there's something about Jesus, that he wants to know more about him. He's, he's intrigued by him. And he does not see Jesus the, the way that the Jewish people see Jesus. Sentence 38, he comes out and says, I find no guilt in him. And he says it three times. He's not guilty. He's not guilty. He's not guilty. And Pilate actually wants to free Jesus. He's an innocent man and Pilate knows this. And he keeps referring to, to, to Pilate, to Jesus, as the king of the Jews. He says it to the Jews three times. Do you, do, you want, do you want me to release your king? And they keep saying, we have no king. Pilate knows there's something about Jesus. And the more he talks with him, the more he realizes something going on. And actually turns into this thing with Pilate where he gets afraid of Jesus. He's actually afraid. Have a good sentence of 7 to 12. Uh, the, it says the Jews cry out, we, we, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought, he ought to die because he has, he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So Pilate goes back to Jesus and says, where, where are you from? Where are you from? And Jesus refuses to answer him. And then you have this, this real interaction around authority. Sentences 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, uh, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. Jesus is saying, you're not in charge, I'm in charge, my father's in charge, I'm the king and you're not. Confronts this guy who could, he can, he can, he can condemn him to death. Jesus is saying, I've got control, you have no control. What's Pilate's response when Jesus confronts him? Straight away, sentence 12 says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate wanted to release him. Pilate is beginning to understand, this Roman governor, who's not a Jewish man at all, uh, is beginning to understand that Jesus is a king, and he's speaking truth, and Pilate's scared of this, and he doesn't know what to do. When I was in my late teens, I think I was 18 or 19, I was caught up for jury duty. Um, who's done jury duty, by the way? Not many have done it, so I, I loved it. It was great. I had a great time doing jury duty. Um, everyone, you know, you, you sit there, you, you arrive at the courthouse, and I was at the Supreme Court, I think, and you arrive, and everyone's trying to get out of it. I'm like, I want in. Like, can you, can, well, well, I'm ready. And, um, and so you, 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 you get taken into a courtroom, and everyone's there who's on jury duty, and, uh, and they, they've got to uh, assign uh, jurors for each case. And so you sort of move from courtroom to courtroom and being assigned to each, to each, to each case. Anyway, I've got my case, and it's quite unique. And it is very much like the movies. It's like the movies, right? And so you sit there in your jury box of 12, and you hear the case. And what I found really interesting is that at the start of the case, the judge really grills you. He drills you on um, uh, what your job is as the jury. What is your job as a jury? He really sets, sets it out clearly. And he says, your job in the jury is to discern the truth in this case. He says, don't be taken led by your emotions or swayed by your feelings, you must discern the truth. Look at the evidence and discern the truth in this case. Listen to all the evidence and you'll make a judgment at the end on what you think the truth was in this matter. 
See, Pilate, Pilate, he asks the question, what is truth? And Jesus is the truth standing in front of him, and Jesus is asking him to discern the truth. He knows he's innocent, he knows he's worth listening to, but he has to make a judgment call about Jesus. Is he who he says he is? Is he the truth as he claims to be? What does Pilate do? You know, he wanted to release him. He knew he was innocent. Wanted to hear more from him, maybe. What does Pilate do? Well, he gives him the pressure. Pilate, here's the, here's the pressure of the crowds. Here's the pressure of the Jewish leaders. And we read in Senate 16, he ignores what he thinks is right, and he delivers Jesus though to be crucified. Pilate suppresses the truth to please others. And in this interplay, we see Jesus and Pilate, we see that Jesus is the one who is the king, who is the truth, and is the one with authority. He is not weak. He does not give in to crowds like Pilate does. He does not buckle under pressure. He is not fearful or afraid, but he is the divine king and there's no one like him. And even in the face of death, even when he's under arrest, and even when he's deserted and he's alone and betrayed, he's still the one in authority calling the shots. And he is the truth, and everyone who listens to his voice is of the truth. And again, again, the question is, is, do you know this king? Do you listen to the truth? Are you a part of his kingdom? Do you follow Jesus on his terms? You know, the whole book of John, as we've looked at the last my six months, we've walked through again and again. of John showing us who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the king, and by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And what stops you from listening to his truth? What stops you from having Jesus as your king? What gets in the way of you following him? Just as Jesus puts Pilate on trial, I think as we read this, I think we are put on trial. And God today is asking you, do you worship Jesus as the king? Do you follow him as your king? You cannot be neutral. You cannot sit on the fence with this one. Either he's your king or he isn't. Do you follow the truth? Do you listen to the truth? Jesus is the divine king. Finally, we reach his final hour. We go to the cross. We're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate orders a crucifixion. This is my third point, divine victory. Jesus is taken and he's crucified. Now, normally... Normally, I, I, I've preached this a few times. I, haven't, I don't do this very often, but I want, I want to walk you through crucifixion. I want to walk you through crucifixion. I think it's worth thinking about for a minute. Now, even before Jesus was crucified, he would have been flogged, scourged, so he would have been beaten within an inch of his life. Pilate ordered a flogging of Jesus. So he's already suffered severely. So with crucifixion, what normally happens is the victim is laid out, laid down on a, on a wooden cross plank and they nail, they nail iron nails through, through their wrists, top of their wrists and then uh, on both sides then they are, then they are, uh, with a ladder or pulley are, are put upright and then nails, they've, they cross their legs over the ankles and they put a nail right through the ankle to hold it all together and they are hung there by the nails. In Jesus' case, most likely he would have been naked. He would have had onlookers yelling at him uh, yelling, throwing insults at him. We have other recorded accounts of people mocking him. Saved others, why can't you save yourself? Would have been spat at, th- things thrown at him. Jesus is alone. He is being humiliated publicly. He's being tortured. It's physical and emotional and relational suffering on, all, on grand scales. 
And the worst thing for him is he's been forsaken by his father as he bears the sins of the world. He bears your sin on the cross, facing the full wrath of God, and for the first time being fully forsaken by his dad. After someone is hung on the cross, they are then left to die. Because back in days, a long, slow, agonizing descent to hell, a torture and a death like no other in history. The torment finally ends when the victim can no longer have strength to pull themselves up on, their, on, their, on the uh, nails to their wrists to get air into their lungs. They die from suffocation. It's suffocating. One historian, Josephus, said of crucifixion is the most wretched of deaths. Cicero called it the most cruel and terrible penalty, incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. So terrible was the death of crucifixion that actually no Roman citizen was permitted to undergo it, however bad the crime was. It was meant for the worst criminals. And this is what Jesus went through. He was innocent. He did not deserve this. And he did not try and get out of it or run away from it. He stood there and suffered out of a love for you. In your place. This is what Jesus did for you and for I out of his great love for us. The cross was the only way for us to be given life, the only way for us to be freed, the only way for us to be made right with our God and have life to the full. I just want to focus on what John says because we can read this account, we can look at that picture, we can see, we can look and think, that's a failure. He's lost. But what we know is that he wins. It's a victory. It's divine victory. Let me read to you sentences 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that, it was, that, it, that all was now finished, he said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A full jar of sour wine uh, stood there. So uh, a, a full jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge, of full, uh, a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. As John says in sentence 28, Jesus knowing that it was all finished, he breathes his last and gives up his spirit. Jesus dies on the cross. He, he knows that it's finished. He knows that his task is now done. And he gives up his spirit. He bore the full wrath of God for our sin. He paid the debt we owed. He dealt with our greatest problem on the cross. He restored us to God. He defeated sin, Satan, and death once and for all. It is finished. Just as was prophesied back in Genesis 3, thousands of years ago, the one that defeats Satan, crushed his head. It is finished. He has done it. He has won divine victory. Peace between man and God can now be enjoyed. Relationship can now be had. Hope is now given. The kingdom of God can now be entered through Jesus' death on the cross for us. Rescue is here. Humanity have a hope and have a future because of it is finished. Jesus has won. Jesus has done what he came to do. I just want to, I just want to encourage you as I finish. I want to encourage you to celebrate 
and rest in the divine victory. Celebrate and rest in the victory of the cross. Now, what does that mean? Because, you know, preachers can throw out these really pithy lines, but what does that mean? Let me try and show you what this means. Because I believe that Jesus' victory, as Jacob was saying, it changes history, it changes everything in so many ways. I want to show you what it means, the victory of the cross, what it achieves, what we, what we have now because of this. You see, because of the cross of Jesus, we are no longer enemies with God. We are no longer facing his wrath. Because of the victory of Jesus, we are children. We're adopted into God's family. Our whole weekend away was just on that fact, adoption. Because of the victory of the cross, we are children of God. We are adopted into his family. He has a heavenly dad. We are loved and cherished and he is for us. He is daily working in us and for us. And we have a real, personal, daily, active relationship with the king of the universe. And I want to say that, I've just said so much there. Let that wash over you. You have a real relationship with the creator of the universe. Romans 8 says, if God has done the greatest thing for you in sending Jesus, how, what, how will he not do all things for you? He's done the greatest thing. How will he do all things for you that he will care for you, provide for you, look after you in every step of the way? The cross demonstrates you are so loved by your creator. You are so loved by your creator. A love that you cannot comprehend or fathom. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those now in Christ Jesus. We're often so quick to condemn ourselves, feel guilty, be plagued by past failures or mistakes. Define ourselves or what, or what we, we aren't or what we should be or who we should be. And we just need to stop working so hard and rest in the cross. We need to let go and see that Jesus has dealt with all of our failures and our stuff-ups and our past and who we try to be. We often say, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. Jesus knows what you've done and he still loves you. You are God's forever loved child. He is your heavenly father and you can approach him, Hebrews 10 says, with confidence. This idea of approaching God, if you're an Old Testament Jew, is like you could never approach God. God is separate. Through the cross, it says, Hebrews 10, you can approach your heavenly Father with confidence. You can draw near. It says, draw near to God, Hebrews 10, with confidence. You are given a new home, heaven, a real sure hope, a future. We are marked and sealed with God the Holy Spirit, our helper till we return home. And he is helping us to follow him every day. He's inside us. God is dwelling in us by his Spirit to follow the, and to fight the good fight. And in our love that we are never the finished product, the Holy Spirit, we're being sanctified, so we are never the finished product. We're a work in progress. God is working in us to overcome everything that we, we battle with in life. We are no longer slaves to sin. We've been freed to love God and to love others. We have Jesus as our Savior and brother and friend, and Hebrews says that Jesus has suffered in every way so that he can help us through every situation of life. He knows what it's like. Through the cross, we are given a new family, the church. We have a new identity, a sure identity, a new purpose, a purpose outside ourselves. This is the victory of the cross, the divine victory. It is finished. I want to encourage us to live cross-centered lives. That means understanding all you have at the cross. Daily living the cross. Let the, let's live lives in the shadow of Calvary. 
warm ourselves by the fire of the cross, not, 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 being, not being moved away so we grow cold, but drawing near again. Reignite our faith as we remember all we have in Jesus. I want us to celebrate the divine victory of Jesus, our King. Let me pray for us. Father, we are, we are given so much through the cross and there's so much to think about and to focus on, Lord. I just want to pray for us right now that you be uh, recalling to our minds uh, things that we need to hear, promises of the cross. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you gave your life for us, that this, you're our substitute. And Father, your judgment and wrath has been washed away, has been appeased in Jesus. Lord, help us not to grow cold. Help us to have a renewed passion for you because of all of your love for us. I want to thank you so much for Jesus and for this truth and help us to listen to truth and to follow the divine King who has secured a divine victory for us.